I'm Alice Gage, editor of the Australian Museum magazine. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the custodians of the land on which the Australian Museum stands. We pay our respect to Aboriginal elders and recognise their continuous connection to country. This is Explore, a podcast that takes you inside Australia's first museum. There are 21.9 million objects and specimens in the museum's collection, and each contains a clue from the past and an answer for the future. Join us on expeditions, in exhibitions and in the lab as we delve into the world of the Australian Museum. I respect that it's an enormous task for us to get there, but it does give me a huge sense of hope that there are so many people in the world right now working on this challenge. This knowledge is embedded and imbued in all objects. I really want to focus on solutions because the solutions are where the power lies to inspire young people, to change government, to get industry working. Climate change is all around us and not just the freak weather events that we seem to be enduring on a more regular basis. Ongoing media coverage and online chatter can feel overwhelming. So today we're exploring our landscapes and looking at solutions and finding reasons for hope. We really need to know where we are right now in terms of climate change. And sadly, we're not in a, a great place. Professor Tim Flannery is the Distinguished Fellow in Climate Change at the Australian Museum. In his 2021 Talbot oration at the museum, Tim outlined his manifesto for humanity's survival of the climate emergency. And so we're at that fork in the road now where we need to turn things around. But, you know, since that year, since 2007, globally we've produced about a third of all of the CO2, the greenhouse gas emissions that we've ever produced as a species. It's horrific the way that the problem just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So in terms of climate change, is there the equivalent of a vaccine? And there absolutely is. And if you want to understand what that is, I can do nothing much better than recommend you watch David Attenborough's witness statement about his life on, on this planet. And, you know, towards the end of that witness statement, what he says is that what we need to do now is to restore Earth's function. He says that because... The current climate system and the balance of gases in the atmosphere is created by life itself. It's created by our forests and by our oceans, particularly. So he lays out a vision of restoring our forests, of repairing the ocean. We can see that damage occurring and we need to be aware that the oceans, they're the hidden puppet masters of the entire climate system, the oceans. If the oceans are healthy, the planet will remain healthy. So we need desperately to honour that vision that David Attenborough gave us of letting our Earth heal itself, restoring the forests, restoring the soils, restoring the oceans. This is not just a, a, a kind of an easy add-on. This is a core business. And if we do that, we still won't have the full drawdown capacity we need. There are, thankfully, a few other options, and I've spent much of the last decade looking at these options, trying to work out where the most effective vaccine lies. One of those options is seaweed farming. It was actually through Professor Tim Flannery and uh, through his role as Chief Councillor of the Climate Council and I uh, tuned into a call and he was talking specifically about solutions 
And one was interesting to me was one of them was seaweed. Could I just ask you to please say your full name and your title for us? So my name is Sam Elsom and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Seaforest, a company that's growing seaweed down in Tasmania. So you actually used to be a fashion designer. How did you get into seaweed? Really through climate change. You know, it was in 2017 and the IPCC released a report depicting some really quite scary graphs actually on the exponential rate of change that we were going to experience as a result of increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and just also illustrated the huge effort that was required if we were to have any impact on curbing that and it occurred to me at that time that that we were doing nowhere near enough so you know I became focused on solutions and you know seaweeds to me at the time seemed remarkably simple as a solution but when you looked around or when I looked around I didn't see a hell of a lot of activity in the space. And so that's really where Seaforest was born. Uh, I began to investigate all different varieties of seaweed that we have down here in Australia and to understand what could have the greatest potential impact but also what could be the easiest to grow. It was during that research that I discovered work happening up at Townsville with the CSIRO where they were using, uh, I think there was 30 varieties of seaweed and they were feeding them to livestock to see the impact on methane emissions. And you know, methane emissions are the second largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions globally. Methane as a gas having 28 times the warming impact of CO2. So they found that through that research one seaweed called Asparagopsis, which is native to Australia and New Zealand, that could actually virtually eliminate methane emissions from livestock. And so that was really exciting. But one of the bottlenecks at the time was that no one knew how to grow it. And so that became our focus and that's sort of what Seaforest does now down in Tasmania. We grow asparagopsis as well as a few other varieties of native seaweed. How does the seaweed work to abate methane in cattle? So of all the 14,000 species of seaweed, asparagopsis is the only one that has this special sort of cell structure. It has small gland cells that look like little yellow sacs and it's inside those gland cells that the seaweed synthesizes all of these bioactive compounds from the ocean. And it's those compounds that when fed to the cattle, they react with the enzymes and the microbial community inside the rumen and they disrupt the production of methane. And in doing so, they improve feed efficiency. So essentially what you're doing is through the avoidance of methane, you're creating more growth or more milk. And so you're getting an uplift in productivity. So not only are we having a positive environmental impact through the emissions reduction, but we're also increasing productivity for livestock farmers. But just a very small amount of seaweed can be fed to livestock. So it's a when we feed the seaweed to livestock, it's only 0.2% of their diet. So a very, very small supplement that goes in with whatever else they're eating. And that reduces the methane emissions. And because methane is 28 times the warming impact of carbon dioxide, that has exponentially greater impact on on reducing emissions. So one cow would produce anywhere from two and a half to four tonnes of carbon per annum. Feeding them just 10 kilograms of our seaweed in one year will virtually eliminate that amount of emissions. And so when you extrapolate that over the number of cattle in Australia, you can see there's a a significant solution here in such a nature-based solution. Sam has been lucky enough to team up with Rocky Denise, a professor of aquaculture on the Seaforest Project. Rocky's special because he he actually 
introduced that seaweed into the CSIRO livestock trials back in 2016. And the people in the world really who were experts in this seaweed all did their PhD under Rocky. And uh, we're very, very fortunate at Seaforest to have, you know, a lot of those experts in seaweed working on the solution for us. We've cracked the science and it does take science and asking questions of nature to solve these types of problems. We, we couldn't be where we are if we hadn't you know, solved that scientific question early on and, and I think that's sort of part of the, the why, why I have so much respect for Professor Rocky Denise and, and his willingness to give up his position at James Cook University to join Seaforest full-time. He's moved down to Tasmania with his wife and he's absolutely completely dedicated to the cause. You know, as much as I'm giving my life to Seaforest, he is as well and there are others. But if we didn't have that science at the core of the business, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have made much progress at all. Seaforest is the only seaweed marine farm in Australia that's commercially growing asparagopsis and using it as a fuel source for livestock. It's a brand new industry and it's really exciting to be a part of a new and developing industry. But most importantly, I think it's really exciting because it's an environmentally positive industry. And also we're operating in a regional part of Tasmania. I think that's really cool too and providing employment. So seaweeds rely on three basic things. They need nutrients, carbon dioxide and sunlight. And so we deliver the nutrients and the carbon dioxide through the seawater. And unlike most land-based aquaculture systems, our effluent is cleaner than our intake. The seawater is more alkaline. The increasing atmospheric concentration of CO2 has led to an increase in the acidity in our ocean. So there's about 26% increase in acidity in our ocean as a result of increasing carbon concentration. So we need to reduce the amount of carbon in our ocean and seaweed is a great way for us to do that. But what I think is really special is with being able to scale this solution in terms of climate change, seaweeds are, can be a carbon sink. So through photosynthesis, they draw down enormous amounts of carbon. They grow really quickly because they're completely immersed in their food source. And then ultimately 40% of the biomass that we harvest is carbon that's captured from the marine environment. We have to keep talking about it. We have to bring these kind of tangible things to market. You know, as soon as people start seeing an option on the supermarket shelf, for example, people need, I think they need something tangible and I think then start to sort of see the potential. It's a very exciting industry to be developing, but it's all new. So I think the world will be ready. It's just going to take some time. Even though the consumer market might not be ready for seaweed, Sam's seeing a strong interest from a bunch of massive brands and companies. We've had a lot of really exciting projects happening over the last two years. So we've been working with not just cattle. So the seaweed works on all ruminants, so any animals with four stomachs, and they are sheep, goats, cows. Um, you know, Someone told me the other day even giraffes have four stomachs. We've been working with a sheep farmer or wool farmer down in Tasmania who's been supplying to Australian tailoring brand MJ Bale. For the last two years, we've been working with those guys and um, they're now producing what they're calling net zero knits and carbon neutral suits, which is really exciting. And we've also been working with a company called Fonterra, which produces mainly dairy products. So they've been feeding it to their dairy cows also on farms in Tasmania and looking at, you know, what the impacts are on milk flavour and milk production. In the beef industry, we've got a number of different trials underway at the moment with universities to validate on a much larger scale the, the abatement. And as well as that, we've got a, a world-first trial with major beet pastoral company, AACO. 
So that's really exciting. And also a, um, a great grass-fed trial with a company, burger company called Grilled. So there's lots of really exciting things happening. And, and I think what I've been most inspired by is just the way that the, the in, whole industry is shifting in the, the way that they're thinking about climate change. Um, in the short time that we've had sea forests, we've really seen that shift, you know, the, the level of engagement and farmers keen to adopt. Yeah, I think that there's never been a time on this planet when there's been more people focused on, you know, climate change and finding solutions to climate change. And whether it's through renewable energy or technologies like growing seaweed or direct air capture, or there's there's never been a time where there's been so much innovation focused on creating positive environmental outcomes. And I think, you know, focusing our energies in that direction, I think gives me a lot of hope that we're on the right track to curb the warming, I think. And I respect that it's an enormous task for us to get there, but it does give me a huge sense of hope that there are so many people in the world right now working on this challenge. Tim Flannery suggests that when thinking about how we can better manage and maintain our environments, we have a lot to learn from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. You know, we have had two centuries of pioneering destruction of our environment behind us. And we heard in our Welcome to Country that, about that very different relationship. And the offer was made from our Indigenous leaders to go on the journey with them to start using the land differently, to start living differently on the land, envisaging it differently. That needs to become our law if we want to start repairing our planet. We can do it bit by bit. It's going to be a long journey. It's going to be a hard journey. But we can't really expect a great outcome without it. Dr. Mariko Smith is a UN woman with Japanese heritage and she's manager, First Nations, Collections and Engagement at the Australian Museum. Well, Wallawan in Injiwan, that is hello everyone in the Durga language of the south coast of New South Wales. I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the people and other beings who keep the law of this land, to the elders and traditional owners of all knowledges, places and stories shared in the Australian Museum and to the ancestors and the old people for their resilience and guidance. And from wherever you are listening to this podcast, remember that you are on Aboriginal land and acknowledge the Aboriginal custodianship forever embedded in country. So the Australian Museum recently acquired the Kimberley Boab Nut Collection. Could you just tell us what are Boab Nuts and could you maybe describe what's carved or painted on them? Boab nuts, um, so the nuts from the Boab tree, is part of a carving practice that is specific to the Kimberley region of Western Australia. And it's highly significant to First Nations communities because Boab nuts are utilised you know, not only as a source of bush tucker and bush medicine, but also as a way to pass on cultural knowledge and also a way to create income through selling carved Boab nuts for tourism. It's uh, similar to the carving of um, emu eggs in the southeast of Australia in that boab nut carvings are a visual representation of cultural knowledge and a way to document life events and stories in the Kimberley region and, you know, provides an alternative form to, um, you know, coincide with traditional practices of carving 
cultural knowledge is on objects made of wood. So, for example, you know, shields and boomerangs. And community um, from the Kimberley have told us that, um, you know, stories are told through the Boab nut and Boabs are special, uh, particularly because they only grow in the Kimberley region. 265 Boab nuts are featured in the collection, illustrated by 85 artists. So this is a culturally and historically significant collection of carved and painted Boab nuts specific to the Kimberley region of Western Australia. And it had been offered to the Australian Museum as a donation in 2021 from Nicola Daraha. And this collection is a valuable addition to the museum's cultural collection, especially given the detailed provenance of the objects, the identification of the artists. There's um, 85 plus artists featured in this collection, as well as the historical and cultural significance of Boabnut carving and painting from that region. And since 2010, the donor of the collection had been collecting carved and painted Boab nuts directly from prominent Aboriginal artists from across the Kimberley region. The artists include well-known names like Marion Cox, John Wehrer, Melissa Carroll, Alan Carroll and Petrina Bedford. So um, just to give you a bit of a profile on one of the artists featured in this collection, in the summer 2022 edition of the Museum's Explore magazine, we feature a beautifully designed Boab nut titled Bush Plum in reference to the image of the bush plum plant painted on it by artist Marion Cox. So Marion is a highly respected and award-winning Gunyandi senior artist and knowledge holder from the Yiyili community that is located 110 kilometres west of Halls Creek in the Kimberley region. And her culturally informed art practice speaks to the stories of country and the patterns used on her boab nuts often focus on bush food and bush tucker. It's incredibly important for the Australian Museum to acquire collections like this for a range of cultural and historical reasons. You know, we really wanted to emphasise as we, you know, acquired this collection the strong cultural and documentary significance of the Boab nuts because, you know, community members in the Kimberley do Boab nut carvings. These objects, you know, they provide a sort of visual representation of culture as well as documenting links to early trade with colonists, you know, as a way to attain income but also develop that relationship through gifting of these carved and painted boab nuts. And so these are very much, you know, also a testament to First Nations small enterprise. And as um, the donor mentioned to our cultural collections team, it would be good to keep the collection as a historical record for future generations. It's a picture in time of generations adapting to modern lifestyles and a record of the artists of various families and language groups. We very much focused not just on historical collections, but it's also important to acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures are dynamic. They're always, you know, changing and adaptive to various conditions. Um, So it's important to also focus and highlight contemporary Indigenous cultures and peoples. And so this collection, you know, provides the Australian Museum with the opportunity to celebrate and reflect on that ongoing dynamism of First Nations culture. Mariko, why is it important for the Australian Museum to share First Nations collections with non-Indigenous visitors? 
they have so much to teach us. And with the objects that have been collected over the last, you know, two centuries, it's interesting to look at some of the older material and to compare to more recent contemporary examples. And um, I'd like to draw listeners' attention to the Tasmanian shell necklaces because um, when you have a look at some of the older examples of shell necklaces from like the 1800s, early 1900s periods, looking at the size of the shells, the type of shells, or the marinier shells, for example, there's so many different types. There's beautiful, pearly, luminescent, smaller ones that are like you've got black, white and different colours. But what I find with the more recent shell necklaces that are still being made by Tasmanian Aboriginal women, that cultural tradition is still continuing strong. What I've heard from the women is that it's getting harder for them to harvest the shells. The women have to venture further offshore to harvest the shells. And also the shells, they can be smaller than what they have been in the past. What we can achieve by reviewing, you know, historical objects with the more contemporary objects that are still, you know, continue to be made by First Nations communities in that continuity of cultural practice is that within a very short period of time, so you're looking at like, you know, 250 years or a little bit less than that, you can see there's been a dramatic change in the environment and in the natural resources over this very short period in comparison to the longer occupation of First Nations peoples. And so we can see a lot of change happening within the last few decades, if not the last 200 years. I think the clear message is it's about understanding your local environment and conditions. So it's about practicality and sustainability having a deep respect and awareness of what is available in your local environment and um, ecosystem. So that's like, you know, that defines many of our cultural practices, is that deep respect and knowledge of your local environment. You can see images of the Boab Nut Collection and find extra resources and stories about sea forest and climate action by going to australian.museum explore. Coming up on our next and final episode, we're taking you into the field to introduce you to some of the world's most recently discovered species. I'm Alice Gage, editor of Explore magazine. This episode was produced by myself and Cassandra Steeth. It was edited by Bernadette fulnam and mixed by Veronica Rasner. Our music was written and performed by Freya Burkow. Bye for now. Bye for now.